Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 to 11. This is from the English Standard Version. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and the gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. You may be seated. Father God, we want to thank you for your word a lot. And we want to thank you for revealing to us your glorious um, character and your nature a lot. And, and today as we look more in depth into your attributes, we pray a lot that we see them for to understand who you are a lot and to see the impact that that makes in our lives and maybe be captured maybe be captured a lot by a fresh sense of fresh sense of your awe and your glory a lot this we ask in the name of our lord and our precious savior jesus christ amen, amen. Uh, when when i was growing up um, back around 1995 there was a singer named uh, joan osborne and she released a song called one of us i don't know if how many people know this it has a famous chorus which basically goes what if God was one of us? Um, the song is banned in my house by my wife because uh, it's considered blasphemous. But essentially, the song tries to picture God as having human issues. So I don't know if you know that song, but it goes like, you know, what if God was one of us as just a slob like the rest of us? You know, so what if God was lazy? What if God had to deal with being anonymous or being unknown? just another guy among the millions of others on the street. See, men have always had a fascination with the idea of God. And there's a sense in us that compels us to look for uh, the divine in the universe. You know, and the Bible says that instinct is there because man was created by God in his own image. Therefore, man and women yearns to know and return back to their creator. But one of the things that mankind is also compelled to do is to form a representation of God, a picture of what God is like, uh, to think about how God's character is. And over the course of human history, that has often taken the form of what we call idolatry, you know, crude representations of the divinity of, of God, which is modeled on things found in nature with characteristics that are assigned based on the projections of human ideas and insecurities. 
And what we just read from Isaiah is God making a claim for himself that he cannot be represented by the images and the projections of the human mind. His nature and his character fall outside the boundaries of what we humans can experience. Therefore, what we can know of God's character can only be discovered in the pages of Scripture, where God has truthfully revealed himself. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at what the Bible has to say about the character of God, his attributes. What do we mean by attributes? An attribute is a specific aspect of God's character. For example, holiness is an attribute of God. So is love and so forth. And the Bible has so much to say about the attributes of God that it would be impossible to cover all of them unless we had a way to kind of classify them and talk about them systematically. And over the years, there have been many ways to classify God's attributes. And we will follow one of the most commonly used methods, which is one that differentiates between what is called God's incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. So what's the difference between the two? Uh, If you think of the word communication, it's kind of evident. Well, the incommunicable attributes of God are those attributes that God does not communicate or share with others. So they're exclusively his. So an example is what we call God's omnipresence, where God is present everywhere all the time, but I am only present at this place at this time, right? So obviously, that is a characteristic of God that is not shared by anybody else. And the communicable attributes of God are then, in a sense, shared with others without the perfection that God brings to it. So an example of a communicable attribute is love. So God is love, but we are able to love as well, though not in the perfect way that God is able to express love. So this week we'll look at some of the incommunicable attributes of God uh, from the Bible. And what you will notice is that there will be a lot of Bible references, but uh, as much as possible they would be up on the screen. So I just want you to listen to them and think about them because the, the, you know, it's very important that we get a biblical idea of what God claims for himself. And the incommunicable attributes that I aim to cover very briefly today are God's independence, his eternal nature, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, or his all-powerful character, and finally, his unchangeableness, or his unchanging character. Now, some of these terms obviously seem a bit confusing, but hopefully, they'll be cleared up as we go through them. And when we talk about God's character, when we talk about the attributes of God, it is important to remember a few things. Firstly, are, the attributes of God are not formed because of God's actions. Right? They are an integral part of God's being or his existence. So God does not have to show love to prove that he is love. See what I'm saying? There's never been a time in which God has not had any of his attributes. Because if there was such a time, then that means there was a time in which God was not God. He has not had to learn new attributes or discard ones that were not working out so well. See, these attributes have been his and will be his for all eternity. So that also means that God does not improve or become better at these attributes, either through 
the passage of time or by new experiences. There isn't a difference in God's holiness today versus 3,000 years ago. He has always been perfect in all of his attributes. And finally, you know, these attributes equally belong to all three persons of the Trinity. It is sometimes easy, uh, perhaps in our subconscious, to assign some of these characteristics to just God the Father or to the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says that all three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, have and exhibit all of the divine attributes. So there is no attribute that is exclusive to any one of the Godhead. So in a way, the incommunicable attributes of God, that we, which we are going to look today, are what makes God, God. He is the supreme being in the universe. There is no one like him. And for many people, that is a problem. See, we live in what is called a postmodern world. You see, the modernists, the people of the modern age, they were compelled to forcefully claim that there is no God and to live like there is no God. But the postmodern generation, on the other hand, is more willing to accept the reality of a divine presence in the universe. Now, if you were to talk to missionaries in North America, especially those who minister in in schools or colleges, they will tell you that they do not have to spend much time trying to prove that God exists, which was not the case uh, even 20 years ago. Rather, the new battle is to show what God is like, how he relates to us, and why is he relevant. See, today's generation has a problem with a God who is all-powerful and does not need us for anything. They want a God who does not know everything, who is perhaps dependent on us for some things and is also learning and improving from experience just like the rest of us. The God of the postmodern generation is not a God the Christian will find recognizable, but it is a God that is more one with nature, a God who is fragile and limited, a God who needs our help to become better and in turn make us better. It is the God of what we call the New Age and environmentalism and of celebrities like Oprah Winfrey and of movies like Avatar. See, that's, that's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who revealed himself to Isaiah or to us in the pages of Scripture. This God makes some bold claims about himself and about his character, but that does not make him irrelevant or unresponsive to our needs. And as we go through these incommunicable attributes today, my aim is to show three things. Firstly, the uniqueness of God. Secondly, the relevance of his attributes to Christian life. And thirdly, the majesty of the gospel. So the uniqueness of God, the relevance of his attributes in Christian life, and the majesty of the gospel. So let's look at the five attributes that we're going to cover today. Um, And I'll describe the essential meaning of them, and I'll indicate some verses from the Bible. You have to pardon me if I go a little bit quickly, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, material to cover, and uh, hopefully you can keep up, uh, and we can pray to God that he um, gives us the strength and the wisdom to do so. 
All right, the first attribute is called the independence of God. Okay? And what that is, is very simple. It basically means that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. He does not need us or any part of this universe in order to exist or to fulfill any need of us. Therefore, that's why he is independent of creation. He is self-sufficient. Now, Paul highlights this aspect of God in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 25, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he does not need anything from us. Not only does he not need anything from creation, but everything in creation belongs to God. Now God tells Job, if you have read the book of Job, he says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now another aspect of God that is related to his independence is how he exists. You see, God is, his existence, his being is totally unique. He exists because he has to. He exists by virtue of his nature. He never came into existence. He was never created. His character is not dependent on anyone else. His character has always been and will always be never short of perfection. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses as I am who I am. Now that has an explicit application in how we see God relating to us, to mankind. You see, often we think that God created human beings because he was lacking in relationship or he was lacking for love or for joy. But when you look at the Trinity, you will see that God always had absolute love, absolute fellowship, and an absolute communication within the Trinity. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 17 and verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with what? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Similarly, he talks about the perfect love in the Trinity. If you go down a few verses, John chapter 17, verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So you see, perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect communication has always existed in the Godhead. Therefore, there's no limitation or imperfection in God that can be satisfied by a human being or by an angel or by any part of creation. He's, God is completely independent of creation in his existence. So that is his independence. The second attribute is his eternity. See, God has no beginning and no end. He is not bound by time. And he sees all time past, present, and future, equally clearly. Now, this doctrine is traditionally called God's infinity with respect to time. What that means is that God is not limited by time like we are. Neither is he affected by time. Time does not change God. When I first started coming to this church, you know, I had more hair and, you know, and less white of it. But now that has flipped. Because I am affected by time. 
But time does not change God. He does not learn or forget things and therefore add or subtract from his perfect knowledge. Time also has no effect on God's promises or on his purposes. What he has willed will come to pass. And what does the Bible have to say specifically about God's timelessness? First of all, it says he's timeless in his existence. So if you read Psalm 90 and verse 2, this is the song of, uh, this is the Psalm of Moses. And Moses says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now even Jesus says this of himself. Remember when he is talking to the Jews and the Jews are accusing him of making himself equal to the Father. And then Jesus says in John chapter 8 and 58, you know, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So God is timeless. He's eternal in his existence. And it's astounding, especially if you are, uh, you know, if you are a student, to think of the fact that time itself is a result of creation. See, when the universe was created, that is when history began. That is when time began. But God is outside of this box. So to him, everything is the eternal present. Even time itself depends on God to exist. That's why, God, that's why Jesus says that he is the origin and the bookend of history. In Revelation we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. So God is timeless in his existence. Secondly, God sees all time equally clearly. He has perfect knowledge of the past, the present, and the future. He does not have to remember the past. And he does not have to look ahead to the future. Like Peter says, you know, there's this famous verse, it's in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. See, God is not limited by the, if I can call it, the cassette tape of history. He does not have to rewind to the past. He does not have to fast forward to the future. He's always looking clearly at all moments in time, past, present, and future equally. Now that is very hard for us to understand or comprehend since we are so bound to time. But for God, it is absolute reality. Now some of these things are are really hard to understand and it may may kind of fly over your head, but, but it is crucial that we realize this because often the attack on the character of God comes through really small things in churches, in in books, in in philosophy. And unless we have a firm basis, you know, even we can find ourselves being persuaded by arguments that go against the God of the Bible. So God sees all time equally clearly. That, you know, I hope that is clear, but we have to also caution ourselves against one thing. This does not mean that God cannot act perfectly in history, in time. So very simply put, God knows that today is Sunday. It doesn't mean that because God is outside the box of time that he has no concept of time, of the passing of time. He can see events in time clearly. That is, 
he knows this event happened after that. Like he can know the sequence of history. Moreover, he can also act perfectly in time. So you cannot go back to God and say, you know, God, it's great that you're timeless and, and, and that you're eternal, but you know what? I have this you know, hyper-accurate atomic watch. I don't know how many of you know what an atomic watch is, but, but if you have an atomic watch, it gets its time signal from one of around four or five uh, central time institutes in the world, and there's an atomic clock. That's the most accurate clock there is. So you cannot go back to God and say, you know, like, I have this, this accurate measurement of time, and that prophecy that you claimed would happen on Jan 18, 2015, well, you missed that date by 15 minutes. Right? That's not what timelessness is. It is not that God is unaware of time, but rather that God sees all time equally clearly and uniquely. And that is key to all prophecy. If God cannot act in time, then prophecies are, you know, are, are unsure. But it is especially key to the gospel. Why is that? Because Paul says, for example, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, notice this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You notice the phrase, fullness of time. God is not taking a stab in the dark, you know, as to when Jesus Christ would appear on this earth, but he timed it perfectly according to his sovereign will. And we sensed that moment in time when that happened, exactly when God wanted it to happen. And the Bible says God has also appointed another day which will also come to pass exactly when, it wants, when he wants it to. And that is a day of judgment for all creation. That is the eternal nature of God. He is timeless in his existence. He sees all time equally clearly, but he can act perfectly in time. Now the third attribute is something that's more familiar to us. It's called the omnipresence of God. Um, omni is Latin for all. So God's omnipresence is essentially God being unlimited with respect to space. So if his eternity is God being unlimited with respect to time, his omnipresence is God being unlimited with respect to space. So it is God is present at every point in the universe equally at every moment in time. So God is present everywhere equally at every moment in time. So let's break that out a bit. First, it means that he's present everywhere. So we know the psalm, David says in Psalm 139, uh, verses 7 to 10, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. There's no place in the whole universe where we can flee from God's presence. And we remember today morning that God is spirit. And one of the the essential truths of God is that he has no measurements or dimensions because he's spirit. He cannot be contained in any space. He's bigger than all of space. This is what Solomon said after building his beautiful temple. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon says in verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven 
cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. It's very important to lose the sense of space and measurements when we talk of God. Because the same God who cannot be contained in the most vast of spaces can also relate to us intimately in the confines of our bedroom. So it is not true that God is just expansive infinitely in all directions. It means that God is spirit. He has a presence. And he and that presence is present everywhere. Okay, so that um, and that's kind of confusing, but I want to spend some time on that because that is really key. There are many religions in the world, especially in the eastern part of the world, that have what is called a pantheistic view of God. The belief that God is one with creation. So Hinduism, like or at least certain branches of Hinduism, will say that God is there in the stones. God is there in the chair. God is there in animals. God is there in trees. So basically what they say is that everything is God and God is found in everything. But that's not what the Bible says about God. The Bible does not say that God is found in everything, but that he's present everywhere. And there's a difference. If God is found in everything, then that means that he's constituted of all the material in creation. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that he's found in everything. It says that he's present everywhere. He's, he's separate from creation, but no part of creation can hide from his unique, personal, omnipresence. And just like God's relationship to time, he has a unique relationship to space. So he can identify elements of space precisely. And he can act differently in different places. See, God is not a, a weapon of mass destruction. mass destruction. He's not a nuclear bomb, right? Where he decides, I'm going to act in the space and it just kind of explodes all over. You know, Jesus, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, He sustains all things by the word of his power. So that is Jesus being omnipresent everywhere in order to sustain all things. But in his love toward us, Jesus also promises in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. And it's a very famous verse. It says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. See, that is a promise to be specifically present in our midst. Okay, It is not because, hey, there's this room. This room is in the universe. And Jesus is present everywhere in the universe. That is why he's here. No, it's not that. It says that he's present specifically here with us today. That is why God can tell Jacob, I will meet you in Bethel. See, in these specific promises, God, we find God's promises to bless his people when they enter into his presence. And David says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, in the Bible, God is present everywhere. But his presence can either be for bless, blessing or for judgment. To people like us, that is a blessing. But there are many people who will run away or try to flee from the presence of God because that means judgment for them. 
But we look forward to the day when we can say, as it reads in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, we look forward to the day when God promises that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So we covered three attributes, his independence, his eternal nature, and his omnipresence. And we look at another you know, omni-attribute, uh, and that is what is called his omnipotence. And that, what that means is he's all-powerful. Potent means power. He's the God who revealed himself to Abraham as God Almighty. He can overcome problems that seem impossible to the human mind. Do you remember when, when God told Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would have a child in her old age? What did Sarah do? She laughed because she was way past the normal age of childbearing. But she got Isaac as promised because what did the Lord say in that passage? He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 115 and verse 3 that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And that all-powerfulness of God has a direct implication when we preach the gospel. You know, we can often feel, especially with certain people, that it is impossible for their hearts to be changed and softened to receive the gospel. But Jesus says to the disciples, you know, after you know, the rich young man comes and, and Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through you know, the, the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to be saved. And then, and then the disciples ask Jesus, but then who will be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, with man, this is impossible. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now what this means is that God's will is never frustrated. Whatever he chooses to do, he accomplishes. But what it does not mean, and I'm saying this because I went through this phase in university where every random person was coming and asking me questions like this. Uh, What it does not mean is that he can do anything that is contrary to his nature or to his goodness or to his purposes. So if someone comes to you in your dorm room and asks, can God create a stone that is too hard for him to lift? That's a logically absurd question because such a stone would mean that he's no longer God and that is impossible. It is impossible for God to not be God or to, to do anything that will make him not be God. You know, there's another impossibility that we read in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 says, you know, so that by two unchangeable things, here's what is impossible, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Because lying is contrary to the purity of God. So God's all-powerfulness is his ability to do everything in his perfect wisdom, his perfect goodness, and his perfect righteousness. Now, finally, we, we come to the, to the last attribute, and, we, and we'll call this the unchangeableness of God. He's unchanging. And this is a very key attribute which has met with a lot of controversy within Christianity over the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, I do not have time you know, to bore you anymore <laughs> with with, with um, you know, the, the details of what the controversy is. But if you want to go and read about it, you can read about what is called process theology or the open view of God. And, and they, both of them directly go
go against what the Bible says about God's unchanging nature. So how is God unchanging? The Bible says that God is unchanging in his being, in his existence, in his perfections, that is in his attributes, in his purposes and his promises. So in four things, he's unchanging. He's unchanging in his being, in his existence. He's unchanging in his perfections. So in his holiness, in his love, he's always been perfect. He's unchanging in his purposes. And he's unchanging in his promises. He's constant and unaffected by the passage of time. However, okay, we have to be very careful. This is what the doctrine does not say. It does not say that God cannot act in different ways in different situations. And it does not say that God cannot feel emotions. Right? So he's unchanging in his being, in his perfection, in his purposes, and in his promises. But he can act differently in different situations, and he can and he does feel emotions. So let's begin with the positive element of that, of that doctrine. You know, this is what Psalm 102 says uh, about God in verses 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. He's the same, and he's unchanging in his perfection. That's why we read of Jesus that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God says about himself, about his faithfulness and his mercy, he says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What is he saying? He's saying you can change. But if I were to change with you, I would have to destroy you. But I do not change. With regard to his purposes, we already read at the beginning in Isaiah, you know, the passage we read that, You know, I have purposed and I will do it. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. And he's unchanging in his promises. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God says, I am not man that I should lie, or a son of man that I should change my mind. Have I said and and will I not do it? Or have have I spoken and will I not fulfill it? He's unchanging and his promises. And, and the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is hugely significant because it uniquely separates God from the rest of creation. See, we are all constantly changing in good and bad ways. What I am tomorrow is different from what I am today because I am sh- being shaped by my experiences. And that will affect my plans and my promises in positive or negative ways. In that sense, we are never stable. We are always in the process of becoming someone. But God is perfect. He is being. There's no greater personality or character that he needs to become because he's perfect. Now this is what a a Dutch theologian uh, says about God's unchangeableness. He says, the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is of the highest significance for religion because the, the difference between being and becoming is the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually 
becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, and it seeks rest and satisfaction. And it can only find this rest in God, in Him alone, because only He is purely being and no becoming. But this doctrine can seem to contradict with places in the scripture where God threatens to bring judgment and then he relents due to prayer or repentance. You know, here, you know, we know a couple of examples in the Bible where you know, Moses intercedes for Israel after God threatens to destroy them when they make the golden calf. And then God says, I will not destroy them. Or God threatens to destroy the people of Nineveh when he sends Jonah. And then he, they repent and he does not destroy them. So that can seem to contradict with the doctrine of God's unchangeableness. But what is absolutely important to understand here is that in the Bible, in the course of his relationships with humanity, God is responding in the present time, which is a time that event took place, to the behavior of people. You know, the biblical incidents here are not saying that God did not know that this would not happen. You know, they're not making a statement about that. What they're saying is that the relationship of the people to God changed and this is how God responded. That response is expressed either by forgiveness or blessing which is different from that initial threat of judgment. Imagine what a terror it would be if God would threaten us with judgment one day and we repent but then God says no dice. Once I have said something to you I cannot change it. That is not how we would expect a relationship to work. And that is not how God has revealed himself to be. Yes, God knew that Moses would intercede. Yes, God knew that he would forgive the nation of Israel. But in the passage of history, in those successive moments in time that are captured in the Bible, it shows that God does respond differently to different situations. That is why there are so many conditional promises in the Bible. It says, if you do this, I will bless you or I will curse you. Does God not know the outcome? Of course he does. But for us, those promises are conditional on our behavior. And the outcome that we will see is dependent on God's response to our behavior. And that also explains verses like 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 11. Um, This is a very controversial verse. People bring this up all the time. It says that I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And you see a word like regret. That's a very strong emotion to be expressed by God. And it strikes as something that only you and I would do. But you know, we have to remember that the scriptures are written for us and often the words you know, that are describing God's response can have a different meaning to how we commonly interpret it. So when God says he regrets, he's not saying he would do things differently if given the chance. If he only knew how Saul would turn out. No, what he's telling Samuel is, this is how betrayed I feel by the actions of someone I chose to be my representative to the nation. This is my response to this change in the relationship that Saul had with me. So it's absolutely crucial to remember that God feels emotions. He's the creator of all emotion, right? What, what used to happen in, in the Christian church 
is that there, there was this idea that God is emotionless. So if you read something that is called the Westminster Confession, which is the founding um, instrument of faith or the confession of churches like the Presbyterian Church, there's a statement there which says that God does not feel any passion. So basically what it claimed is that God does not feel sorrow, it does not feel joy, he does not feel pain. Rather, these are all just words that does not communicate how he feels. But that is not the case. The Bible says that God is the creator of emotion. We only have emotions because God himself feels emotions. And when he says that he rejoices over us, or that he grieves over us, or he pities us, or his wrath burns hot, or he hates sin, and that he loves zealously and jealously. These are not fake put on emotions. You know, sometimes we tell uh, parents, especially fathers, you know, show some love to your child. Because, you know, you don't know how to do that. Just show it. But that's not, that's not the case. This is how God feels. You know, his emotions are not given to sinfulness like ours. But his emotions are the ones we are called to imitate. To love like he does. To have mercy like he does. To hate sin like he does. And to delight in righteousness like he does. See the beauty of God. Is that he is both infinite and that he is personal. He is not subject to the constraints of creation. He is independent. He is not bound to time or space. And he does not change. He is a perfect being. James says in him there is no shadow or variation due to change. But he is also personal. He relates to you and me as a person. And in turn we can relate to him personally as well. We can pray to him. We can love him. We can worship him. And we can obey him. And he can speak to us. And he can rejoice over us. And he can love us. He's a God who is both infinite and personal. Now why, did it, why do we just go through this half an hour of these attributes? Why are they important to us? You know, as we, as we discussed last week, the, the, the whole point of this exercise is, is because we believe theology has something to contribute to our conduct and to our lifestyles. So how do the attributes of God we have seen today contribute to our confidence and to our ways of living? See, God's independence assures us that he is the supreme being who is worthy of adoration and worship, not because he needs it to exist. God is no less or greater whether we worship him or not, but because his greatness deserves it. But more than that, it brings meaning and significance to our own existence. You know, people go through this phase, especially young people, questioning what is my significance in this world? What is the reason for my existence? And when you consider that God is fully satisfied in himself, and yet he chose to create you and me to have a relationship with us, doesn't that provide meaning to human existence? You know, God says, his sons and daughters are those who are called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He does not need us for anything, yet he chooses to delight in us and rejoice over us like a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. What can bring more significance to your lives than that? And when it comes to God's eternal nature, we can be confident that what he has promised will come to pass in history because he sees all time equally. He has seen the end 
And he knows how everything turns out. So in times of sorrow and persecution and doubt and trouble, we rest secure in the fact that God is in control of history and of our circumstances and that he has promised us that we will one day be gathered to him to live with him forevermore because he is the Lord of time. He has willed it. He has seen it. Therefore, it will come to pass. God is omnipresent. It means that we cannot ever go outside the boundaries of his presence. In our places of need and despair, God is present. In his presence, there's abundant joy and blessing to be had. And even when, as a Christian, sin tempts you to flee from his presence so that we can indulge in the passions of our flesh, be warned that God is there. But more than the warning, take heart that he's present and he's able to help. You know, here's another thing that theologian said. You know, when you wish to do something evil, you often go from the public space into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. And even in your room, if you fear some witness, you retire into your heart. And there you meditate on sin. But even there, God is present. He's more inward than your heart. How can you flee from yourself? There is one person who is more inward even than yourself. So there's no place that you may flee to from God. But there's every place where you can flee to God and be reconciled to him. Will you flee from him? No, you have to flee unto him. God is present everywhere. He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And whatever he has promised to do for us, he's able to do. You read the newspaper, you look at history, realize that no one can stand in his path. No change in the course of history impacts his power. He's infinitely more powerful than the rulers and the principalities of this world that threaten us. And he will overcome them on our behalf. But you know what's a beautiful thing? God says he will use all of his power, like you read in Jude, to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless on that last day. And today, if you despair that if you have a friend or a family member whose heart is opposed to Jesus Christ and to the gospel, know that salvation belongs to the Lord. And what is impossible with us is possible with God. Finally, let us consider his unchangeableness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we know that his character will be the same. His promises will not be subject like ours to the whims and fancies of our circumstances. His purposes are stable. And he's absolutely perfect in all of his attributes today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. So he's infinitely worthy of our trust. He is our rock, the one constant amidst the toil and turmoil and trouble of our own lives. That is why these things are relevant. But then I would ask you to look to the gospel. Why, why do I bring up the gospel at this point? And I've heard many sermons that focus on the divine attributes of God. And we are often content to think about them, appreciate them, and move on with life. But as Christians, we have to never lose sight of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who shared in humanity, who bore our sins on the cross of Calvary, who died and was buried, and who rose again to become our friend, our brother, and our faithful high priest. And, I was, and as I was preparing for the sermon, and going through each of the attributes that we listed today, it hit me 
that the incarnation of Jesus Christ forces us to once again consider the extent to which God went in order to save his people. You know, one of these coming weeks, we'll see we'll soon see about Jesus, about the unique personality of the Son, about how he is both God and man, the perfect God-man. But think about this for a moment. God is independent, and yet Jesus was a little child, dependent on his parents for nourishment. God is eternal, but Jesus entered into our time and our history 2,000 years ago. God is omnipresent, and yet Jesus traveled by road and by sea to go out into the villages and cities of Israel, the good shepherd seeking his lost his lost sheep. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and yet Jesus hungered, he thirsted, and he wept. God is unchanging, but 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was born in Bethlehem. He grew in wisdom and stature. He lived for 33 years, and then he died for you and for me. If the gospel has lost its capacity to melt your heart and move you, I invite you to consider who God is and then look to Jesus, who as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, though he was God, did not count the attributes of God a thing to be taken advantage of, but he left their use by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For our sake, he shared in the human experience so that we who are alienated from God or who are alienated from God could once again be brought near to him. You see, that songwriter was wrong. You do not have to wonder what it would be like if God was one of us because he did become one of us. He did not share in our sinful behaviors, our, 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 our digressions, but he knows how you and I feel and he has the answers to the problems of our earthly lives. See, the Christian faith stands uniquely on this one aspect of God's self-revelation and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If the incommunicable attributes of God separates Christianity from the religion of the New Age and of the post-modernist, the truth of the incarnation separates us from everyone. You know, in an exchange with the Christian uh, apologist James White, this was the famous Muslim debater Yusuf Ismail. This was his opposition to the gospel. This is what he said, the idea or the concept of Jesus being God or being divine has raised for Muslims a number of issues. If Jesus is God and God allows himself to be edged out of the world and onto the cross, It was the idea of God incarnate coming down to earth, humiliating himself in a manner of speaking and being crushed by his enemies. Now, if that's the idea of God, if God allows himself to be etched out of the world onto the cross, then our understanding of God is fundamentally a God who is weak and totally powerless in the world. He helps us not through his omnipotence, not through his almightiness, but rather through his weakness and suffering. See, there he has misunderstood the person of Jesus Christ. But he captures one key point. He says, I am willing to be helped by a God who is almighty, who is omnipotent. But you are asking me to believe in a God who helps me 
through his weakness and suffering. Yusuf Ismail, as do countless other Muslims, Jews, and others around the world, consider the astounding paradox of the gospel, and having considered it, reject God as someone who is not worthy to be worshipped. And yet you and I are living proofs of the fact that God, who is independent, who is eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, and unchanging, this God saw it fit to act in history through the foolishness of the cross so that he could redeem his people from eternal damnation and bring them to himself on his own initiative so that he could love us, speak to us, and rejoice over us. This infinite and personal God, who is more worthy of worship and adoration? Now, this is what we sing. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and he died to take away my sin. Let us pray. Father God, what an awesome privilege it is, Lord, to know you as you have revealed yourself, to, to understand you in all of your majesty, in all of your divine attributes, Lord, that the things that we cannot even comprehend, we cannot even experience in our own lives, Lord, the fact that you, are, you do not need us, that, that you, are, you are not limited by time or by space, Lord, or that, that you are never changing your person, Lord, that you are not affected by history, and yet when we remember, Lord, that your son came into this world to die for us on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you and that today we can lay claim to take advantage of those attributes for our own life. We want to thank you, Lord, and worship you and praise you. And we pray that we live lives that are worthy of you. Help us and guide us, Lord, to be ones in whom you delight, in whom you rejoice, in whom you feel worthy to call us as your sons and daughters. May that be our heart and our inclination as we go out into the world this week. We ask all things in the mighty and mass name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.